my name is Sarah Bracey. I am the Psychology Program Coordinator at Welch College, uh, as well as the Campus Counselor. As a counselor, I specialize in crisis. Most people don't go to counseling unless they are in a crisis of some kind. It could be their marriage, it could be in their job, their family, their health. So over the course of the last 15 years or so, since I started my professional training, I've learned to specialize in crisis. A talk on crisis goes hand in hand with the subject of suffering. I especially like these two quotes here. The first one is from uh, American psychologist Eric Johnson. Uh, he writes, adversity is commonplace in human life. As a result, everyone suffers eventually, and some people suffer a lot. Uh, I think that that speaks uh, very much to the fact that suffering is going to happen eventually. Um, and uh, I like to say, if you haven't been on this planet for very long, just wait. Uh, and that's kind of what our second uh, um, quote here speaks to. This is from George Orwell. Uh, you may have read um, some of his works, like 1984 or uh, Animal Farm, and he writes, Most people get a fair amount of fun out of their lives, but on balance, life is suffering. And only the very young or the very foolish imagine otherwise. And so uh, I, th I felt like that's a, that's a great quote, you know. Um, and uh, so... I feel like suffering is such an important topic, not one that is, uh, is going to be popular, but it is one that we need to consider if we're going to talk about uh, crisis. So crisis counseling is not just for the professionals. I believe wholeheartedly that God calls all of us as Christians to help one another, and we have a responsibility to one another, especially during times of crisis. So what does God's word have to say about this topic? We're going to look at three passages. Um, and, and we're going to look at these passages briefly, but if you have your Bibles, feel free to get them out. Uh, first, we're going to turn to Galatians 6. Uh, starting there, Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit, a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is a very important passage that speaks to our relationship to one another. As Christians, uh, it's very important that we uh, bear each other up bear one another's burdens. And we're going to come back to this, uh, this particular passage in just a moment. But for now, let's turn to Matthew 25, uh, verse 37. This one is especially convicting. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, 
as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Once again, we see here that there are going to be some circumstances where we're called upon to help others, to provide food, water, shelter, clothing, medicine, support. These are basic needs that we should be providing to others who are in need. I would love to spend more time with this, but let's go ahead and move on to the passage in 1 John. 1 John 3. We're going to look at starting in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, sometimes in life, you don't know that there is a need. You don't see it. And that person maybe is not communicating to you. They aren't asking for help. And so the need goes unfulfilled. But that's not what this is referring to. You'll note that John says, sees his brother in need. Have you ever been walking somewhere or maybe driving down the road and you see someone pulled over and you keep on going, but you feel the spirit start tugging at you? You know, hey, that guy needs help. God is trying to get you to see your brother or sister in need. Of course, you have to be wise and careful because there are people out there who will take advantage of your help. I don't think God is calling us to do something foolish. In other words, if you see a need and you know you can fill that need, don't close your heart to that person. And there are many other passages throughout the Bible that speak to the importance for us as Christians to love one another. And this passage from 1 John is very convicting. If you don't help your brother or sister, does God's love live in you? That's powerful. Many times throughout the Bible, we'll see the words trials, tribulations, tests, suffering that describe a crisis. If you ever want to take your Sunday school class through this topic, or maybe you want to do a youth series on crisis, uh, which of course I would highly recommend, there are several additional passages included on this slide here that you might consider using. I'm a strong believer in that more people in our churches need a theological view of suffering. If so, my job as a counselor would be much easier, if not obsolete. Suffering, of course, is a difficult topic, like I mentioned, not one that fills the pews, so to speak. And I understand I'm a bit unusual in that most people probably don't want to talk about death, dying, and suffering quite like I do. But these are important topics for our churches. So, we know we need to help others, especially when they are in crisis, but you may be saying, I want to help, but I don't know what to do. Or, I don't know if someone's in a crisis. So we're going to move to talking about what a crisis is and what it typically looks like. Dr. H. Norman Wright uh, was a Christian counselor who made a very great impact on me and uh, helping me understand this topic. He wrote a book on crisis and trauma counseling that I highly recommend. Um, especially if you're interested in this subject or if you're uh, wanting to possibly uh, go through it 
with a, a team of people, a crisis team that you're wanting to put together. Some of the things I'm going to include in these next few slides come from that book. First, I think it's helpful to distinguish what is a loss, what is a crisis, and what is trauma. Now granted, they can often overlap with one another, and sometimes you'll see a bit of a progression from loss to crisis to trauma. But they're a bit different from one another. So let's start with loss. That's one, that one's pretty easy. Um, and I want to hear from you, so feel free as anybody to jump in. What could be considered a loss? A loss of a job? I think I heard that from somewhere. Yeah. What else? Oh yeah, sure. Could be. Uh, oftentimes we think of loss. We think of somewhat we're losing somebody, but it could also be losing a possession, like you're, you know, losing a home. Your house catches on fire. That's a major loss. Anything else? Divorce. What's that? Divorce. A divorce. Yes, the loss of a relationship. Absolutely. Now this question is a bit harder. When can a loss become a crisis? It overwhelms you, yeah? If you don't have control over the loss. If you don't have control, yes, very much so. Any other ideas? Major changes in your plans or your... Okay, yeah, yeah. Like, um, the you experience the loss, but the loss ends up changing much more than just one thing about your life. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. You lose a job, you know, can't pay the mortgage, then where are you going to live? Yeah, it definitely snowballs. So a loss typically produces some kind of sadness, maybe an, even an emptiness within that person. But a crisis tends to throw things off balance. People it can experience a state of shock or even panic. Uh, we're going to come back to this, but before we move on, uh, what would be an example of trauma? I'd say that any event that uh, a person undergoes that basically gives them last, a lasting effect in a negative context on their life, their emotional state, uh, how they operate as a person. Sure, yeah, yeah. So something that's much more lasting, you know, that's not short term. Yeah, definitely. Any other ideas? That's okay, we're gonna talk about it. Trauma is oftentimes what happens when someone who is in crisis doesn't get the help that they need. It's what we call a serious wounding. And it actually comes from the Greek word for wound. It overwhelms the person, especially their senses, and actually has the ability to rewire and even damage the brain. Trauma is very serious, which is another reason why it's important for us as Christians to help others who are in crisis so that it doesn't become a trauma. So let's talk about the, the crisis example of you know losing the job, okay? So if someone were to lose their job, that's definitely a loss, but it can become a crisis like we mentioned. If uh, they can't find another job, they've lost their, you know, uh, they can't pay their mortgage, they've lost their house, 
They're now living on the street. You know, I mean, you can see how this quickly could escalate into something that's a very traumatic event. You know, imagine having, you know, raising your kids, not having a place for them to go to sleep at night, um, not having that safety. Okay, so I think we've got a good idea here. Um, I want to just mention really quick that these are not mutually exclusive and we do see some overlap just depending on the situation and the people involved. There are many different types, sorry, there we go. <laughs> there are so many different types of crises out there. Uh, some you're going to come across and some we pray we never see, but it's good to be aware of some of these major ones. I won't read through all of these, but I wanted to include these so that we can see that there are many different types, you know. It's good not to have one specific type in mind all the time. Your first reaction when you think about a crisis may be a crisis of faith. For others, it may be a natural disaster, uh, which I do include on this next slide. But we don't want to become too fixated in our minds on a particular type of crisis. Anything could become a crisis given the right circumstances. <clears throat> and you might look at this list and think, yeah, these really are rare. And they are, but who knew that three years ago we would be dealing with a pandemic flu? And I'm reminded of some of our brothers and sisters in Kentucky last year who lost their churches to flood. These can and do happen. I believe there's a, a seminar on natural disaster training that's being offered this week, and that would be a great addition to this talk today. Now, there are four common elements of a crisis, and you won't always have all four of these, but these are the most common. A hazardous event. Something happens that starts a chain reaction where it eventually will culminate into a crisis. So a single mom loses her job. Your 15-year-old daughter becomes pregnant. The football player with that full-ride college scholarship shatters his knee. So an event occurs. The person is usually in a vulnerable state to begin with prior to the hazardous event. There are people in your churches who are vulnerable, and if the right sort of circumstances occurred, then they would very quickly be, become or be in a crisis. Think of the older adults in your church, the widows and widowers. Um, I have a, a woman who I sit with at church, Miss Jean. She is 95 years old. Okay, she's vulnerable. Um, I, I worry about her. I think. Just, you know, one fall, that's all it takes. You know, she's, she's at a very vulnerable state. So usually uh, you have a person who's in some kind of vulnerable state to begin with before the event has occurred. Number three is precipitating factors. These are minor events that become the last straw, so to speak. Uh, this is, you know, stubbing your toe and then just losing it. Um, but these minor events can cause a tremendous emotional and psychological reaction. Um, and so I find this picture very helpful for this illustration. And then lastly, 
uh, we see a state of what we call active crisis. Um, this can look a lot of different ways. Sometimes they are physical symptoms, you know, uh, stress headaches, migraines. Uh, in children, we often see stomach aches, uh, mus muscle tension. Some of the psychological symptoms could be irritability. Uh, this person may have a very short fuse or uh, they're crying uh, a lot. And you'll also see them have these feelings of panic, oftentimes, especially in this first stage, or, or just utter defeat. Of course, one of the things you wanna keep your eye on, though, as these people are in an active state of crisis, they're going to be looking for some type of relief. Some will turn to drinking. Uh, some may turn to other kinds of maladaptive coping techniques. Uh, to try to help ease the feelings and the thoughts that they're having in the midst of their crisis. Now, there are some factors that you want to take into consideration that can affect the crisis situation. First is what we call cognitive appraisal. You may have someone come to you, maybe it's someone at church, maybe it's a family member, and they're just breaking down. You know, they're freaking out. And uh, when they finally tell you what has gotten them so upset, you think, that's it? That's what's got you so upset? And you know who's like notorious for doing this, right? Are toddlers, okay? I love the, uh, the series of memes that parents post where it's like their child is just having a complete meltdown and the parent is like, I told them the sky was blue. And you know, like they just, just had this meltdown. Like that's, that's typical for toddlers. But unless they're a toddler, don't treat them like they're a toddler. You might be thinking in the back of your mind that this situation is rather ridiculous. But take into consideration your cognitive appraisal versus their appraisal of the situation. An appraisal is based on how a person perceives an event, including their own personal beliefs, ideas, and especially their expectations. I find that the older I get, the more stories I hear, the more suffering I see. Well, you know, it does something about your expectations about other people. In ministry, you've probably heard some really terrible things. And the more you're exposed to that, the lower your expectations are for human nature to the point where things really don't surprise you as much anymore. Compare that to someone who maybe has led a life up until now that hasn't seen a lot of suffering. Your expe expectations are going to be different. Therefore, your appraisal of the situation is going to be different. But that makes their crisis no less a crisis at least to them. The next one is support. This is another factor that can affect, affect a crisis. Um, in um, thinking about what kind of support network does this person have? Friends, family, clubs, groups. And by the way, the body of Christ has the potential of being one of the greatest support groups ever available if the members know how to respond to that person in need. Past coping. How has that person coped with adversity in the past? 
are their ways of coping healthy or unhealthy? And there is some debate here on what constitutes a healthy versus unhealthy coping technique. But if you know that person well enough, you probably have some idea of how they've coped with some things in the past. And lastly, the duration of the crisis. People cannot exist in a permanent state of crisis. Now, the literature out there will say that a crisis can typically last up to six weeks. I don't know why they choose six weeks, but that's, that's what they choose. And longer than this, it may lead to trauma. Therefore, help needs to reach that person within a relatively short period of time. Now, some people may argue, well, you can't be prepared for a crisis. That's what makes it a crisis. But I have to respectfully disagree with that. I'm not saying that you'll be 100% prepared all the time, but there are some things you can do as church leaders to help prepare your congregations for a crisis. Well, and for one, just coming to this is one way to do that. You start by helping your church member members handle their own crises. Teach them about what a crisis is and what to look for. If you have a leadership team at your church, they definitely should know about this. Maybe you want to lead a small group time with them where you could read Wright's book or other books about crisis training, and I've included some of those on here. There is a book called Crisis Counseling. It's written by Scott Floyd. It's very good. There's also the Disaster Ministry Handbook uh, by Atten and Bowen. Um, it has a ton of resources for churches to use. Uh, especially concerning natural disasters and, and community emergencies and things like that. But what happens is when you equip all your members to handle their own crises and you equip your church members to help other people in crisis, then gradually you're going to see a cycle of people who are helping one another. And when you're able to accomplish that, your task and, you know, a lot of it is not so much crisis. It's, you know, you might be doing some crisis training, but you've got a group of people there who are able to help support you in your ministry, and it's not landing all on your shoulders. But here's the thing about teaching about other, oh, sorry, excuse me, back up. <laughs> there we go. One of the things that I don't think our churches do enough of is educating and preparing our fellow brothers and sisters concerning suffering. I'm not trying to wag my finger, though, and say, you should be doing this. This is something we all can be doing better. Teaching others about suffering is something you want to do before the suffering starts, though. Maybe it's the grief over a lost loved one or a middle schooler who's getting bullied or maybe an employee who is continually getting passed up for a promotion at work, whatever it is, if you wait to talk about a theological understanding of suffering when they're already in the midst of their suffering, it's almost too late. Why? Why is it so difficult to teach someone what it means to suffer in Christ when they're already in the midst of their suffering? Any ideas? Yes, absolutely. 
Yes, they're bitter. They don't want to hear it, you know. Any other ideas? They're already overwhelmed. Right, yeah. They're in crisis. They, they can't think about this. Yeah. Anything else? Right, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Well, also, we as humans, we're stubborn. We don't like to be taught how to think or how to feel. You know, our nature is to say, well, you don't know me. You don't understand what I'm going through. And to some extent, they're right. We don't know exactly what they're going through. But we can point them to the Lord who does. We, we see frequently throughout scripture that God is listening, God is paying attention, he sees, he hears, he empathizes with our suffering. So when you educate congregations to understand why and how we're going to suffer, when that suffering occurs, they already have the resources and the knowledge to draw closer to the Lord during those times. They know what to do to persevere and it will make your job much easier. I wish I, wish I could spend more time with, with this, but I wanna go ahead and move on. I, I do wanna point out a couple of things in this slide, and that is suffering by itself is not path pathological. It's not intrinsically bad. We're taught, especially in our American culture, that you need to avoid any and all suffering all the time. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, sure, nobody wants to suffer, but we don't need to escape it so quickly because oftentimes God is trying to communicate something to us through our suffering. Um, one of the things, though, that we want to be very uh, or especially concerned about are children who are suffering because oftentimes children don't have the resources to cope with intense amounts of suffering quite like adults have adapted over the years. And so we want to be especially concerned um, to watch out for children who are experiencing chronic suffering. So the second thing you can do to prepare for a crisis, one was educate, two is to accept. Now, sometimes in life, we're going to go through certain life stages. Uh, for example, this past year has been a little difficult for me because I'm at the point in my midlife where I can't do the things that I used to be doing physically. Uh, I don't have the strength I once had, and as a result, I've had to suffer the consequences. Um, some of you older folks are like, you don't even know. <laughs> uh, but this is something I know is a life stage. This, is, this happens. I can't do the things at 41 that I was able to do at 21. I understand that. But it's something I have to accept. It is a life stage. Other life stages that people may struggle with um, can include taking on a new role, becoming a mom, becoming a dad, uh, becoming a student. I mean, if you think about it, these are good things. But sometimes taking on the new role is very difficult for people. Uh, geographical changes, socioeconomic uh, changes, maybe losing a job, like we said, getting a pay cut, um, paying $5 for a carton of eggs, you know, <laughs> not okay. Um, I mentioned, of course, you know, physical changes. Uh, people are also gonna go through mental and emotional changes as they age. 
Um, and sometimes people have a very difficult time moving through these life stages or transitions, even when they know they're coming. I'll give you an example. There's something we're seeing at the college that's a little unusual. So first of all, when I was in school, okay, I couldn't wait to graduate. I mean, one, school is expensive, all right? Two, I was ready to get out there and start my new life. But, and, well, if I'm honest, three, I was tired of being told what to do. You know, I wanted my freedom. Well, that's not the case uh, with many of our students today. We're seeing more and more students putting off graduation. They're putting off moving on and getting jobs, becoming adults. Why? Well, they all have their various reasons. I'll give you that. But I wonder if this is part of it. They're terrified about what's around the corner. They don't want to, or maybe they don't know how to accept that life is going to go through stages. Sometimes these life transitions become a crisis for people. So in the church, we prepare our people for life's transitions by helping them learn to accept them. We educate about how to suffer well and we accept that things are going to happen, not just to others, but to me. There may come a day where I have to give up my hobbies because the arthritis in my hands is too painful. There may come a day when I have to give up my job and become a caretaker. And we accept that sometimes life is going to throw us a curveball and we, that you know, we never saw coming. We live in a dangerous, unpredictable world. Of course there are gonna be some things that are going to just hit us out of the blue. But there needs to be a way where we help others to leave the nest, so to speak, despite the uncertainty that's out there. The third suggestion I wanna give you in preparing for a crisis is to increase support in and around your church. Find ways for the people in your church to not only build relationships with one another, but to also have support outside of the local body. For example, Miss Jean, my 95-year-old pew partner, she doesn't just have me or the pastor or her son. She goes every week to the community center and plays cards with the girls down there. She's also got her hairdresser that she sees once a week. And I think that one of the reasons that she's lived so long is that she has a great social support system in her life. By the way, when your sheep have other sheep that they can talk to and lean on, that makes your job as a shepherd a little bit easier. Sometimes when I'm in a counseling session and I hear about the crisis that this person is in, sometimes I think to myself, you know, what this person really needs is a best friend. And as I work towards ending my talk today, let me share with you some final thoughts to keep in mind related to this topic. Let's go back to Galatians 6. We read in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But if you skip down to verse 5, Paul says, for each will have to bear his own load. 
See, one of the things that we miss sometimes as English speakers uh, is the subtleties between the different words that Paul is using in the Greek here. There's a difference between the word burden and load, as it has been explained to me by people who understand Greek far better than I do. The word used for burden is to imply something that is so heavy that one person cannot carry it by themselves. We are to help each other with the burdens or crises in life that are too much for one person to bear. However, the word used in verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load, load is not the same word as burden. The Greek word for load here implies a person's daily responsibilities. You may call it your workload. Your load is your own work, your own responsibility. Just as no one else is responsible for your daily workload, you are not responsible for other people's workloads. I believe one of the many reasons that ministry workers suffer from burnout is because they sometimes confuse another person's load as a burden. We must be careful not to take on too much because then we aren't really helping that person from a crisis. We actually may be enabling them to not deal with their own responsibilities. And we also could be robbing them of the opportunity to learn that responsibility of carrying their own load. If you yourself or you know someone who struggles with this, uh, I would especially recommend the book Boundaries. Uh, by Christian authors Henry Cloud and John Townsend. And this book was instrumental to me uh, when I was recovering from ministry burnout. Two more things I want to mention, and then I'll open us up for a time of Q&A. A crisis can be dangerous. Sometimes, or sorry, someone may feel that the weight of their suffering is too much, and they decide to take their own life or someone else's. That is why a crisis needs an immediate response. This is why it's so important for it not to be all on one person's shoulders. Have a team of people who've been trained and ready to respond at a moment's notice if you can't be there. You need a vacation. You need to be able to participate in things like the National Convention. Who do you have who can immediately respond to a crisis situation? If you don't have someone, here's how you can start. This list is recommended by that book I mentioned earlier, Disaster Ministry Handbook. This list is just to get you started, but if you're serious, and I hope everyone is about having a disaster ministry, then the resources in this book are going to be incredibly helpful to you. Look at where your church is at. What are the church's major risks? Who are those people who are vulnerable? Um, what, look at the, where your church is situated, physically and uh, geographically. What are, what are the risks within the church? Then conduct a facilities audit of your church property. One of the things that um, our church is undergoing right now is we're having the parking lot completely redone because of all the cracks in the pavement. It's made it really difficult for our older people to get around outside. And that's dangerous, that, that's a risk. And so uh, conduct a facilities audit. Number three, who are your church's first responders? 
you know, who are those people who could be sort of the backbone of a disaster team or a crisis team? Number four, determine what training, if any, your church already has in place. Look at the strengths of your church members. What, what are their backgrounds? Five, meet with the property committee to find out about exit plans, building security, keys. Six, inventory any emergency medical resources that you have and make a list of any possible other available resources. Um, and I'll add to this, know who is around you in your community. Who can you refer to if someone needs legal counsel or financial uh, counsel? Uh, come have a list of good referral sources. So if someone gets uh, or finds themselves in a place of financial legal crisis, you can refer them to someone. 